So I came home last night, and um, uh, and, I, and my family was watching uh, The Lion King, the, the new one, the, the, the movie version. I haven't seen it yet, so don't tell me how it ends. I hope there's no super sad parts. But, um, but I came in, and I watched Mufasa running uh, through the desert, and, and his mane, that beautiful red mane, was just blowing in the wind. And I thought, could there be a more glorious mane than that? And I thought not. And then this morning, I looked up on the stage, and I saw Danner's mane... That majestic mullet, that majestic mullet on a mission for the magnificent, and uh, I thought, man, it could, it could, it could be better than that. And and the thing about Dan, I was thinking about this. The thing about your, the thing your mullet and and Jesus have in common is they both become more amazing the longer you look at them. You know what I mean? And it's like it just keeps getting better, you know. And so, men, I want to challenge you guys. There's a young man leading the way here, and I am ashamed that, that none of you old guys, I mean, I can't, I'm up here on, on, on camera every week, but, you know, some of you guys need to be growing a mullet. We need some mullets and some skullets and whatever else going on in here, and we can be known as the church with mullets, you know, or, or we could be known as the church that loves their neighbor, whichever you guys choose, whichever you, you feel like is going to be the easier thing to pull off, but awesome, kudos on the mullet. Uh, that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about today. But, um, but Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, all, the different, uh, all the different heads of hair that you brought here this morning. And I thank you that you have every hair in our, in our, on, our hair, on our head numbered, and you know us intimately inside and out, and thank you for that. Um, thank you for your amazing love, and as we turn to your word, I pray that we would not miss whatever you want to tell us today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, Matthew 6, this morning, continuing um, through the Lord's Prayer, and I, I was thinking this week about a story. I've shared this story before, but it's one of my favorite uh, stories from the time period where we were foster parenting. Uh, about nine months, we, we were able to foster parent uh, a little boy and a little girl, and, and uh, there was a... a, a a season there where um, uh, the little boy, SJ, four years old, he was having a really hard time at school and had been getting into some fights at school and maybe kicking some students and some teachers and had had a hard time at home and it was just really, really rough. And, um, and somebody uh, here in church uh, uh, had, uh, had taken, uh, Latrice had, had, had uh, uh, said, man, I want to I take the, the McGowan's a meal. She brought us a delicious meal and a delicious dessert, this cream cake, and it was so good. Oh my goodness, it was good. And the thing is, though, I had told SJ already, I had said, you know, the way, the way you've been acting at school today, you're not going to get dessert tonight, okay? You, you know, no dessert. If you're kicking teachers and kicking kids, you know, kids that do that don't get dessert. That's the consequences for your choice. And then this incredible dessert showed up, and I was like, oh man, I feel kind of guilty. But when you're a parent, you gotta, you gotta stick with your guns, right? And so I did. And and um, and 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 at dinner, I mean, it, it, things did not get better when he didn't get when he didn't get dessert. He's just watching everybody else eat dessert. I'm like, sorry, dude. I mean, um, tomorrow, let's wake up. It's a new day tomorrow. We're gonna wake up and 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 act and act different, and treat people different. And he woke up the next morning, and it was a brutal morning. I mean, fits and screaming and hard time. And, and he was just having the little guy was having a hard time and. And he got downstairs finally, and, and I was eating um, some cake for breakfast because um, health, and, um, and, and I'm just eating this cake, I'm just going to town on this cake, and it was so good, and, and he looks up at me and says, 
Mr. Matt, can I get some cake? And, and I was like, but I can't give you any cake. I've already told you, like, you can't have cake and act the way you've been acting. So have a better day today, and we'll talk about cake. And, and you know, it's hard as a parent, just as hard as a human being to balance grace and truth, you know, justice and love. And, and I said, you know what, Here, here's what I'll do. That's just, and I'm not giving you a bowl of cake, but I'm going to share my bowl with you. I'm going to give you what's mine, okay? And so he's like, all right. And so I give him a, a spoon, and I get a spoon. We, 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 we sit down there in the kitchen floor, and he's in my lap, and he's just going, and I'm just eating as fast as I can because, I mean, he's going to town on that cake, and it was so good. And we get to the end of it, and I said, and here's a teachable moment. You know, sometimes to the kids, we have these moments where I'm really going to lay some truth down. And it's going to just blow this kid's mind, right? And so I said, hey, bud, I want to tell you something. Yep. I said, you know, that was called grace. I said, when you get something that's better than you deserve, it's called grace. And he goes, what's chocolate cake called? <laughs> and, and, and Sana was just like, I'm out of here. She just walked out of the room. She's like, I'm done. I can't. And I, I don't know if it was fatigue or lack of sleep or just whatever, but I started laughing, and I couldn't stop laughing. And I laughed until I cried, and Lilith, I'll never forget his little face looking up at me laughing. He didn't even know what we were laughing about, but it was hilarious. And I think when it comes to God's grace, we are like, we're, we're like that little boy, and we're hungry for it. We're desperate for it but we're confused about what it even is. And I think there's times that we think we've got it figured out and God just laughs because we're, we have such a, a minimal capacity to understand how delicious and how beautiful and how good the grace of God is. And one of the primary ways we see God's grace play out in our lives is in the gift of forgiveness. In the model prayer um, that we've been walking through, Jesus prays, Father, he tells us to pray, for, for, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? And so as we walk through the prayer, he, he first pointed us upward and said, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then, he, and then he, and he pulls us back downward. Let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he takes us inward. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts. And then he takes us outward. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But it's interesting to me that, that as Jesus takes us to those in, interior needs, he puts bread and forgiveness right next to each other. When, last week we saw when Jesus telling us to pray for our daily bread, our, uh, our bills and our food and, our, and our, our health and those things, that tells us that Jesus cares. God cares about our daily needs. He cares about the things we care about. But it's interesting that he puts forgiveness right next to bread. And I think the reason he does that is because just like we can't survive without bread, we cannot survive without forgiveness. It's a daily need both to receive forgiveness and to extend forgiveness. We can't survive without it. Um, and they're side by side for a reason. And if you're in any kind of close relationship longer than about a week, you will find that you need to be forgiven and that you need to offer forgiveness. Relationships require forgiveness to survive. And we were made for a relationship. You know, I was taught early on uh, that, uh, that, that we as humans require food, water, and shelter to survive. Food, water, and shelter. And that's true. We do require food, water, and shelter. But science has come to understand 
what, in recent years, what the Bible has always taught, and that's that you can have food, water, and shelter, but still not survive. We need a fourth component. We need food, water, shelter, and relationship. Children that are, that are, that are isolated from relationship or, or grow up with a much greater risk of, of disease and, and mentally and, and, and emotionally and physically. And, 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 you know, there's a reason that solitary confinement is such a, in prison is such a, 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 di- a difficult, painful punishment. It's, 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 t- it's hard. We weren't made to be alone like that, whether we're talking Shawshank Redemption or Cool Hand Luke or whatever, you know, when, when the warden really wants to stick it to somebody. Put them in solitary. Another month in the hole, you know, and the person comes out and they're like, oh, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's devastating to be isolated. Um, in November of 2018, Rich Alati, a professional poker player, bet somebody $100,000 that he could survive alone in a dark room for 30 days. He said, I survive in this, in this dark room. He had a bathroom, he had a bed, he had, all, he had food, he had everything that he needed, but he had to be in this dark room alone for 30 days, and if he did it, he would make $100,000. Anybody think $100,000 sounds pretty good for a month? He didn't make it past 20 days. He said, get me out of here. But like a true poker player, he negotiated to get $60,000 after 20 days. Uh, so, okay, I yeah, I could do that, you know. You know, it, it, he, he said, I got 10 more days, and I can't do it, you know. We weren't made to be isolated. We weren't made to be alone. Yo, uh, Yossi Ginsberg is an Israeli adventurer who spent a few weeks in the Amazon. And I'm not talking months, not talking years, weeks in the Amazon. And he said the loneliness was the absolute most difficult part. And during that period of a few weeks, he had to invent multiple imaginary friends to keep him company. Um, which I don't think is that weird. I mean, who doesn't have imaginary friends, right? 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 No, he had to create imaginary friends to keep himself company. We were made for relationship. God created us for relationship with him and for relationship with each other, but the problem, as we know, is sin entered in. Our rebellion against God and sin, what sin does is sin destroys relationships. Sin damages and decays and diminishes and destroys relationships. And so sin, when we talk about sin, it is both those things that we do that are contrary to God's will. It's the things we don't do that we should have done. And it's also just that status or that state or that position of being separated from God. So sin as a status and sin as uh, as those things that we do, destroys, corrodes relationships. And so we're made for a relationship with God. We're made for a relationship with one another, but sin devastates relationships. Sin destroys relationships. Sin ends up isolating us. So therefore, forgiveness is a daily need. I mean, and if I refuse to accept forgiveness, if I refuse to extend forgiveness, I end up in a dark room. I end up in a dark place. I end up spiritually isolated. And I wasn't meant to live that way, and you weren't meant to live that way. And so as God works in us, as God leads us to a place of honesty, as God leads us to a place of humility, we'll find ways that we need to be forgiven from God and from other people. And also we'll see ways that we need to forgive other people. So there's several ways to describe sin. Um, some... 
uh, you know, a, a real common word in the scripture to define sin is, is to, to miss the mark. You know, you're aiming at the target, you miss it. But Jesus, and there's different ways that this is translated here in Matthew 6, um, verse 12. Uh, but he says, he defines sin as debt. That's what the, the Greek word is. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He describes sin as a debt that we could not possibly pay. Um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, it's like a snowball. It's like the reverse of Dave Ramsey's debt snowball. Dave Ramsey's snowball, debt snowball is you, 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 you pay off your debt in a snowball, but the way sin debt works is as, as we continue in sin, it keeps, that snowball keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where I can't carry it. I can't, I can't pay it. I'm isolated, I'm alone, and, and I cannot deal with this myself. So there's really good news. I mean, imagine you owed like millions of dollars of debt that you could never, and you're making like minimum wage, and you're never going to pay off millions of dollars of debt. And somebody comes along and says, hey, I want to pay off all your debt. And you're like, nah, I'm good. You know? Oh, I'm not in debt. How dare you? No. Yeah, I am, and I've got a problem, and I'm in need, and yes, please pay the debt. In Ephesians 4, 31, Paul says, Let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. As. That as is a really powerful word here. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Back in Matthew 6, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us in the Lord's Prayer is the only line that Jesus comments on. And he says, if you, uh, if you don't forgive the sins of others, you will not be forgiven. And there's all kinds of ways we can try to do acrobatics with that. But what Jesus says is pretty clear. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And it's not about like, if when I forgive you, I'm earning God's forgiveness for myself. No, the, the New Testament is clear that we can't earn it. That's what grace is. We can't earn it. But if I'm refusing to forgive you, my fists are clenched. And even though God in his mercy and in his grace wants to put forgiveness in my hands, I cannot receive it. Because my fists are clenched. And what forgiveness is really all about is by God's spirit, my fists go from here to here. I go from clenched-fistedly ruling my life, holding on to my sin and every sin that's ever been committed against me. And by the work of God's spirit, I open up my hands and I let it go. There's different types of injury. Um, if you've been to the ER lately, uh, which if, if you have, I, I'm sorry, it's not a fun place to be right now, but if you've been in the ER lately, you'll see that there's all kinds of different injuries going on. And part of triage is determining who gets treated first, and it's usually rated in order of severity of, of, of the wound, and, and do we have the resources here to address that wound? And so if I go to the ER and I have a skint knee, is my skint knee important to God? Yes. Does, ever, does Rolling Plains care about my skint knee? Yes. Does it matter? Do my feelings matter? Yes. But if the person next to me has a femur bone sticking out of his leg, 
is my owie going to get addressed first, or is this broken bone going to get addressed first? The bone, the broken bone is going to get addressed first. And triage is about discerning, not which wounds matter. It all matters. But it's about discerning which one do I need to focus on right now. Right? If you have a wreck and like, um, and, and like your, 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 um, your spleen is ruptured or something like that, and you've got a broken fingernail, which one of the, they're going to start with the thing that matters the most, the most significant wound. And what I believe is happening in our culture and in our society is we got a lot of us walking around with skint knees that matter. It matters. But we're treating our skint knees like they're broken femurs. We track them with each other right now. And sin, because sin distorts our perspective. And what I'm tempted to do because of my sin is I'm tempted to think that, oh, anything. I've just kind of, what, what I've done to God and other people, that's just kind of like skint knee stuff, no big deal. But what you did to me, that was a big deal. I minimize my own sin and I maximize other sin. Anybody? Just me? Man, what kind of messed up preacher we got here? Yeah, it's what we do. And so we're, 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 we're in a day and a time, and I think it's probably always been this way to a degree, and we're walking around saying, look at my skint knee getting on Facebook, can you believe what, what Alexis did to my knee? Everybody look. But the reality is, anytime I've known somebody that disproportionately responds, there's usually a broken femur under the surface somewhere. Here's what I want to say. There's real wounds in this room. There's real trauma in this room. Anytime we gather, every time we gather, there is so much pain, so much real trauma. But if we don't look at the real broken bones in our lives, we're going to constantly be making a big deal out of the skin knees in our lives. Does that make sense? If we don't address the real thing, we're going to constantly make a big deal out of the thing that's a distraction. So I have people come into my office and, you know, and we'll be talking and, you know, have you ever had a, a traumatic experience, any kind of pain in your life? Well, when I married this guy, you know, okay, well, before that, is, you know, anything like this ever happened? No, everything was perfect before I met this bozo. Well, well let's keep, you know, well, that was that three-year period where I was terribly and horrifically abused. But the real problem is he won't put the toilet seat down. What we do is we've got this real pain today, but it's being fueled by trauma. And so we want to make a big deal out of this thing so we don't have to look at this thing. But we, we got to address the real hurt. We got to address the real pain or we're going to go through life constantly making a big deal out of stuff that just is not a big deal. There's, there's things that, that happen in our lives that we just need to shake off. You ever have a coach that said, walk it off? I don't think we're doing a good job as a society of walking it off, okay? There's things that we just need to walk off. Like if, you know, if, if, if Kevin says to me, Matt, you're the dumbest person I've ever seen, and I, I didn't, I'm dumber now that I heard your sermon. 
okay, thanks for your feedback, you know. Uh, but I can, I can say, you know what, I don't need to go blast him on social media. I just, maybe he was having a bad day and let's move on, okay. You know, Sarah didn't speak to me. She didn't even shake my hand. You know, well, okay, maybe I just need to bear with her. Maybe I just need to give her a little extra grace and kindness. But see, we want to major on those things that aren't important because we're hiding from the stuff that is important. And until you address that real pain, you're going to find yourself locked in a reliving and making a big deal out of things that aren't a big deal. There's got to be perspective. And the Holy Spirit gives us perspective. Our sinful nature, though, distorts our perspective. Whether you've got a skint knee or a broken femur, spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking, God cares about both. But there's a different process in addressing both. You go to the ER, you've got a skint knee, they give you, you, know, they give you a, a Captain Marvel Band-Aid, they send you home. You got a broken bone, they got to set, the, they got to set that bone, and there's a whole team of people that are required to do that. And so the skint knee type of stuff that happens in church, at work, at the neighborhood, so much that we just got to let it go, dude, you know? And we don't have to share it. Can you believe what, you know, what Megan did? Just keep it to yourself. But man, where real damage has been done, you know the difference. Where real damage has been done, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta widen the circle, and we gotta get help. That's why God's given you the body of Christ. You're not gonna perfectly walk along, but people can limp along beside you and help you. Regen and reengage are two great tools, but it's really just about discipleship. It's about just walking and limping aside, alongside other believers and saying, "Man, I need help with my broken bones. I can't do this by myself." So with significant trauma, we need to widen the circle. We need to get help. But we widen the circle with the skint knees because that's a distraction from the broken femurs we got. We're embarrassed of that broken femur. We're ashamed of that broken femur. We want to hide it. And so it's kind of like we're people like walking around with all these broken bones sticking out. How you doing? You know, we're, I'm great. But we're not great so often until we address what's going on. And so what, what is forgiveness and what is it not? Forgiveness is not forgetting. Um, forgiveness is remembering the cross of Jesus Christ. The only way you're going to release anybody is by remembering the cross of Jesus Christ and that you need, and I need that cross. Forgiveness is not condoning what somebody did. It's not minimizing what they did. It's maximizing the cross of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. Forgiveness may lead to reconciliation, but it takes one to forgive. It takes two to reconcile. Reconciliation takes both people. Reconciliation may not happen. But forgiveness is something you're commanded to do no matter what. Forgiveness is not a feeling. You may feel it. You may not feel it. Tomorrow you may feel different. It's more than a feeling. Forgiveness does not mean you don't have boundaries. So if I'm going to pick on you again, Alexis. If every time I saw Alexis, she punched me in the face, am I, called, am I commanded to forgive her? Thank you. Right answer. 
but do you think I'm going to keep about four feet of distance between me and Alexis? Yeah, because I love her and I forgive her, but I don't want to get punched in the face anymore. So abusive people will tell you that boundaries are not okay. If you really forgave me, you wouldn't have any boundaries. That's malarkey. Boundaries are okay. Having boundaries doesn't mean you haven't forgiven. It means you just don't want to get punched in the face anymore. And maybe reconciliation will come. But forgiveness doesn't mean you have to lock arms and be best friends. In some cases, with those broken femurs, in some cases, with abuse and things like that, you don't need to be best friends. You can have boundaries. Forgiveness is not instantaneous. You may pray that prayer, and you may relinquish over and over and over and over again. Forgiveness does not mean that injustice is okay. So often in the church, bad things have happened to kids and women, and and we've, so often in church, we've twisted this incredible gift of forgiveness, and we've used it to let people get victimized more. And we've so often used it to cover things up. Oh, just forgive. Forgiveness doesn't mean injustice is okay. God is a God of justice, and he's a God of love. I really appreciate Rachel Denhollander. She's my hero, one of my heroes. and she, She's a survivor of abuse from Larry Nasser, Dr. Larry Nasser, that abused hundreds of gymnasts. She's a Christian, and at his sentencing, she shared her faith, she forgave him publicly, and she asked that he receive the harshest, possible, the toughest possible penalty for his crimes. She says, forgiveness means that I trust in God's justice, and I release bitterness and anger and a desire for personal vengeance. It does not mean I minimize or mitigate or excuse what he's done. It does not mean that I pursue justice on earth any less zealously. It simply means that I release personal vengeance against him, and I trust God's justice, whether he chooses to meet that out purely eternally or both in heaven and on earth. And I have not found a better definition of how justice and forgiveness work together. I think about Jesus and the thief on the cross. Jesus said, you know, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Jesus forgives the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross didn't just bounce off of the cross and not, he still suffered consequences. Jesus didn't take the consequences away humanly, but he forgave him and he released him and he welcomed him. Rachel Denhollander says, I can pursue justice very bitterly and angrily and never see it accomplished. Or I can pursue justice from a heart of forgiveness because whether or not justice is done is completely outside of how I personally respond to my abuser. Justice and forgiveness, justice and love are both rooted in God's character. And there's only one place in this world you're going to find justice, perfect justice and perfect love. And it ain't on Judge Judy, okay? Only one place you're going to find perfect love and perfect justice and that's the cross of jesus christ where he loves you so much that he gave himself for you and he is so holy that he paid the penalty he paid the debt justice uh, forgiveness is about releasing and relinquishing resentment over harm done to us it doesn't take away the injustice but it transforms our feelings towards it you know god uh, he will judge evil. He does judge evil, and there will come a, moment, a time where he will finally judge evil. God hates evil more than you do. 
The reason you hate evil, at least on some level, I mean, at least we hate other people's evil, right? Uh, we pick and choose and we do it, you know, unevenly, but to a certain degree, we hate evil. The reason we hate evil, and we're commanded in Romans 12, hate what's evil, cling to what's good. The reason we hate evil is because we're created in God's image and God hates evil. And there will come a point when God will judge and pour out his justice on evil. And in the meantime, he offers forgiveness. He offers release. Lewis Meads wrote, when we forgive evil, we do not excuse it, we do not tolerate it, we do not smother it, we look evil full in the face, we call it what it is, we let its horror shock and stun and enrage us, and only then do we forgive it. So if something truly is evil and wicked, we're not called to minimize that, we're not called to condone that, we're not called to say, that wasn't a big deal. It was such a big deal that Jesus had to die for it. It was such a big deal that Jesus gave his life for it. It was such a big deal that, the, that you know, there, there's been times in mine and Sonda's relationship that damage has been done to such a degree that only the blood of Jesus Christ could possibly atone. So I want to I share four prayers with you as you walk through forgiveness. Maybe that's, and, and forgiveness begins with you, right? It begins with you seeing your need to be forgiven, and then it works outward from you. Um, you know, I, I, rather than being astonished that someone would sin against me, as I come back to the cross of Jesus Christ, I can be astonished that he would give himself for me, that he would love me, that he would shed his blood for me. And when I'm astonished at that, that transforms the way I view the debt that other people owe me. So one is the prayer of examination. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. That's a prayer that we need to pray regularly, daily. Sometimes you'll be in a situation where you're going to go confront somebody over their sin. This is a sign for confront, by the way. Um, You're going to go confront somebody for their sin. And you ever do this where you go and you and you confront somebody, you lay it on them, and then you realize you're the jerk? Has this ever happened? Is this just me, or does this happen to other people? Yeah, so that's what we gotta say. Search me, oh God. Show me what's going on under the hood. So in those moments when we're tempted to be like disproportionately angry and upset, one thing I've learned, I don't think I've probably learned much in the past 20 years of doing this, but one thing I've learned is that people are never mad about what they're mad about. People are never mad about what they say they're mad about. There's usually something deeper going on. Whenever it's disproportionate, whenever it's reaction. And when I find myself disproportionately responding to something, I gotta, now it's hard to do this. Apart from the Spirit of God, it's impossible to do this, but what if we said, before I make that post, before I shoot that email, before I shoot that text, before I call my posse together and tell them how we gotta stick together on the, you know, what if I said, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me if I'm wrong. Where are there skint knees that I'm treating like femur breaks, and where are there femur breaks that I'm treating like skin knees? The prayer of confession. 1 John 1 says, if you confess your sin to God, he's faithful 
and just to forgive you. Why does he say just instead of merciful? He says just because Jesus has died for that. Jesus died and paid, gave his blood so that you would be forgiven, so that you could be forgiven. And God honors that because God is just and merciful. So we confess that. And when you confess your sin to God, you know, there's a couple different ways, you know, to apologize to God or to apologize to somebody. Sometimes we apologize like this. You know, I'm sorry if you felt like I did something wrong and, you know, stuff and like I just hope you get over it you know that's not an apology okay I'm sorry if I did anything you know maybe that's not an, an apology is here's what I did I was wrong please forgive me and that's how we go to God I was wrong I don't, forget the extenuating circumstances I was wrong forgive me Please, by the blood of Jesus. I plead the blood of Jesus. Not my goodness, but your blood. The prayer of confession. The prayer of repentance, Psalm 51. Against you and you only of us sin, create in me a clean heart. In other words, and if Lynn Ann came and paid my debt off, and then I went and racked up all my credit cards tomorrow, she would probably think he didn't get the point. Repentance is praying, God, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to just get off the hook today. I want to be free. And then the prayer of relinquishment. Philippians 2 says that Jesus emptied himself. And if we're ever going to receive forgiveness, if we're ever going to give forgiveness, you got to be poured out. I got to be poured out. And so we pray that, that Philippians 2 Lord, empty me of me. Humble me. J.C. Ryle gives five marks of a forgiven person. One, he says, a forgiven soul hates sin. He said, if you and sin are friends, you and Jesus are not yet reconciled. A forgiven soul loves Christ. You think about that woman, that woman that everybody talked about, and, and, and like Jesus and it, and it had gone over to, uh, had gone over to Simon's house and different Simon, not the disciple Simon, but a, but a really religious guy had gone over to the house and they're having a cookout. And this woman comes in and she like, they're like at the table eating and like eating their ribs or whatever they're eating. And this woman comes in, everybody's like, what is she doing here? And she, she gets down at Jesus' feet and she starts weeping all over his feet and like wiping her, his feet with her hair and it's so intimate. It's like, can you imagine how awkward this moment was? Super awkward. This would be awkward now, much less then. You're like, why is he letting her do this? Like, what is wrong with him? And Jesus says, man, I know what you guys are thinking. You didn't even give me a basin when I came in to wash my feet. This woman has not quit washing my, my feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. She's been forgiven much. She loves much. And when you know how much you've been forgiven for, you love. You love Jesus. You love people. And when I'm having a hard time loving, it usually means I've lost sight of the debt that's been paid for me. He says forgiven souls are humble. Forgiven souls are holy. Forgiven souls are forgiving. Think about those. Do those characterize me? 
Um, so again, forgiveness isn't saying that sin doesn't matter. Jesus didn't die on the cross because sin doesn't matter. He died on the cross because it does matter. And it is significant. And he's the only one that could pay it. And from the cross, as Jesus is hanging there being taunted and mocked, he says, what? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Like, can you imagine if he had been like, you know, kill them all, Father? Like, that would have been totally contrary to everything he had taught. But he was consistent and faithful and true all the way to the end. Eugene Peterson says, but who else is there to say, Father, forgive them, but Christians who know how to pray that prayer with Jesus? However important justice is, and it is important, forgiveness is more important. The Christian at prayer, even as Jesus at prayer, is not, first of all, an impersonal agent of justice, but a personal conveyor of forgiveness and a witness to the resurrection. Listen, he says, such forgiveness is not soft sentimentality. It is hard-edged gospel. Such forgiveness is not a moral shrug of the shoulders. It's a white-hot flame of resurrection love forged in the furnace of the cross. When you forgive somebody, you're not saying, eh, no big deal. It's not soft sentimentality. It's not a, a wink of the eye. It is a white-hot flame of resurrection love forged in the furnace of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what forgiveness is. It's the only thing that sets you free. So as, as the band comes up, I... I, I um, I encourage you to pray that Psalm 139 prayer. Search me, O God. 